But uh, let's bow our heads with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you thankful for all of the good things that we receive because we know they come from you and thankful that you're a God full of mercy and full of strength. We come here asking that as we open up your word and as we seek to understand it better, that you would speak to our hearts and minds, that we would know what it is you would have us to do, what our next step may be, and that you would strengthen us to do it no matter what the consequences may be. Please be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to talk about the first song ever written in Scripture. And as the Scripture reading gave away, what might that song be? The song of? Well, Moses first. I'd say, yes, the Scripture reading was on Miriam, so kind of a trick question. I didn't intend it to be that way. But Miriam took part of her brother's song, right? And then... Uh, as they went about around the camp and through the mountains, all the women joined her with the timbrels and they kept singing sort of like what we would do here with the refrain. You know, they would go around and around and around. So let's take a look at a little bit of the background before we get actually to the song itself, because the song is built upon what the children of Israel just experienced. And we could go, you know, keep going back and back for the, for the sake of, of this sermon. I'm going to assume, you know, that the 10 plagues took place in Egypt that as Passover uh, took place, they uh, left uh, the next morning. They plundered the Egyptians. Remember, the Bible tells us that you will be able to plunder them. Uh, God speaking uh, to Moses, saying do, uh, the children of Israel will do this as they leave. How will they plunder them? Not by stealing, but by asking, which is quite an interesting way of plundering someone. Basically, I like the clothes that you have there, and all the Egyptians are so eager for them to go, take the clothes, take the gold, take the silver, take whatever you want, just leave, because if you don't leave, we're probably going to die, and they liked their life. So they gave them whatever they asked for, they left, they're wandering through the wilderness now for a few days, and God is guiding them by this cloud, and he leads them between mountains on one side and the Red Sea on the other. And then all of a sudden, the children of Israel look behind them, and what do they see? Pharaoh and his army, they're chasing up behind them. They start seeing the dust, and someone comes and gives a report. Hey, Pharaoh is coming after us, and it doesn't look like, you know, he's by himself on a donkey. He's with his chariots, with his spears, with his swords. They're, they're intending to do us harm. And so what do the children of Israel do? Uh, they do what they do best, and they complain. Um, you know, because the children of Israel are the only ones that complain. Complaining doesn't happen today anymore, does it? Well, let's read from chapter 14, uh, Exodus chapter 14, verse 10. We'll start the, the story, a little bit of the background there. We're going to be building up to chapter 15, which is where the main bulk of the sermon this morning is going to be. Um, Exodus chapter 14, verse 10, and it says, And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Because there are no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than we should die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, 
Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. So Moses encourages, encourages them, even amongst their grumbling, complaining, whatever you want to call it, as they are afraid and as they see no way out, right? Mountains on one side, the Red Sea on the other side. From the Egyptians' perspective, though, what does it look like? We have this in the bag. I mean, they can't go anywhere. They have no weapons of war. This is going to be like taking candy away from a baby. I mean, we're going to get all of our wealth back. We'll, we'll, we'll strike them down and God can deal with whatever is left. Their God can deal with whatever is left. Okay, so very fearful, very afraid. At this time, Moses encourages them and uh, <clears throat> God speaks to Moses and tells him to do what? Raise up your hand, stand still, right? But raise up your hand, reach out your rod over the, the sea and the sea will... Probably the most, I would say, recognizable miracle in the Old Testament, the parting of the Red Sea. Uh, even those who don't believe in the Bible somehow have a knowledge of it. It's, it's amazing. And God parts the Red Sea, and the children walk through on dry land. Now, in the midst of this, uh, night is falling, the Egyptian army is coming closer. That cloud which was leading them by day and became a pillar of fire by night, does anyone remember, did something special? went between them, right? Went, instead of leading them and going slightly forward and showing the direction, the cloud suddenly changed and went between the children of Israel and the army of Pharaoh. And to one side, to Pharaoh's side, it became utter darkness. To the other side, to the children of Israel, it was still that flame of fire which helped light the way. How would they have known in pitch darkness where to go, what to do? So God provided light for the children of Israel, while at the same time he was keeping Pharaoh and his army in darkness, so they had to wait. Now they come uh, to the sea, and Moses bids them, what? Go forward, advance. As of yet, the waters have not parted. It is not as though the children of Israel did nothing. God told them, go forward, and as they went forward, and as they came right to the shore, it was at that point that the waters began to part ways and they were able to, to uh, go through on dry ground. Now, when they were on the other side, the darkness all of a sudden that kept the army at bay lifted off the Egyptians and now they saw what? A path through the sea. said, let's go and get them. And they followed and what did God ask Moses to do? Again, reach up your hand, hold up your rod and the waters came back together Pharaoh and his army were drowned, they were destroyed, and sure enough, it says there at the end of the chapter of chapter 14, it says, thus Israel uh, saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt, so the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. The verse um, just before that, I think, says that, um, and before, no, verse 29 says, is it 29? Where is it here? 29 and 30 kind of says that they came out in that day, they saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Essentially, they saw that they were gone and that that threat, that army which sought to do them harm was no more forever, just as Moses said they would be. And out of this experience, and notice, just before we go to the song itself, notice in verse 31 that it says, Israel saw, they experienced. When it says saw, it doesn't mean that they just they just 
looked at it with their eyes, but it's saying that they did more than just see it. They felt it. They felt the danger. They were afraid. They thought they would die, and they went from certain death to absolute deliverance. From certain death, it's, it's so, so different. There's, there's almost a reversal of what takes place there. Pharaoh's army, who thought they had it in the bag, who thought this was going to be so easy, who were not afraid at all to go and, and fight against the children of Israel, they end up being the ones that die. Whereas the ones that were afraid and thought they wouldn't live through the night are the ones that actually live. And God goes on to prosper them and they become this great nation and he gives them the land eventually and so on and so forth. But uh, it's interesting to me, and this is something you can pick up over and over again in the Bible, that in response to an experience with God, people believe. Now, we know that there are all kinds of, you know, physical... Uh, scientific laws, we could say, that rule our universe, as it were, like gravity is a fundamental law, Uh, the laws of thermodynamics, like there are more that we could list. But there are spiritual laws as well. And we we can ascertain these as we study the Bible. And one of them is, the way that I would phrase it at least, is that you believe after you experience. But there's a catch to that. And this is, this is what I find in Scripture. But you experience only after you follow. So you follow what I'm saying there. People believe in God, that He is who He says He is, that He cares for them. After they experience, He does great things in their life. But that doesn't happen unless you are first following in the way in which He's asking you to go. Which for some of us, you know, for all of us, in, ge- in a general sense, is the same direction, but specifically may be, may be different. So in terms of keeping his moral law, obviously we ought to do our best to keep the moral law. That's going to be the same for everyone. As, as, as far as God may be asking you specifically to, to witness to a certain person, he may be asking you to do that and someone else not to do that to the same person. Like you, keep your mouth shut, you need to speak. That may be specific. So hopefully you understand that part. Uh, I need to see a few nods that lets me know that, that you're, you're following along there. What is interesting to me, particularly in this circumstance, and we can find this again in other stories in Scripture, uh, is that God is so, so desiring that He be known, that He will allow the children of Israel to follow Him even reluctantly, and He'll still show Himself to them. And I praise the Lord for that, because at times, if I'm being honest... I follow him sometimes reluctantly. Like, this doesn't, all common sense tells me I shouldn't do this, but yet I feel so impressed that I need to do this. And I do it, and I'm thankful after, but in the moment, I'm a reluctant follower. But I see Jesus working even through my reluctance. And that's something that he did here. The children of Israel are complaining. Most, why did you bring us out here? Do you want us to die out here in the wilderness? They went in off graves in Egypt. And God doesn't say, oh, okay, I'll leave you guys out here to die. You don't seem to appreciate everything that I've done for you. No, he's still coming. He's still wanting so much for them to know him that he says, I can work even with that. And as long as you're willing to go, which is what they did, they walked up to the water. They did what they could. I'll read you a passage about that in in a short time. But God was able to work for them because they just took one step of faith. Okay, let's go to the actual song itself. Now, before I sort of 
go through slowly and start dissecting, and, and, and I'm going to read all the way to verse 18. You can follow with me in your Bibles. This is Exodus 15, the song of Moses. Then Moses and who? Who? The children of Israel. So this is everyone. It's not just Moses who's singing this song. Sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its, and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains are also drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown. The waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. In your, you, in your mercy, have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign, say the last words with me, forever and ever. Amen. What a beautiful song. There's such, such deep theology in so, so many songs of Scripture. I would say even in our hymnals today, we have such beautiful songs which hold so much deep theology. So let's go back and try and uh, highlight some of the things which Moses is expressing in this song. So uh, beginning from the beginning, it says, I will sing to the Lord. He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown to the sea. Notice, notice what he's saying in verse 2 here. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God. I will praise him. What, what are you noticing there? It's very personal, isn't it? It's my, my, I will, I will. He is my, my, my. It's a beautiful, beautiful display of what God wants to have with each and every one of us. You see, God doesn't just want to redeem humanity. He wants to redeem you and me. He wants to redeem Andy, not just humans, Andy, who is part of the human race. He wants to be my God, not just a God or the God, my God. And Moses here is saying, as they have had this great deliverance, the Lord is my strength. He is my God. I will praise him. He has become my salvation. Now, interesting 
the word used there again, become, highlighting the fact that after you go through an experience with God, he becomes something to you which he was not before. Do you notice that? I'll say that again. When you go through an experience with God, he becomes something for you that he was not before. But again, it only happens if you follow, if you go. And this is a beautiful, uh, beautiful theological point, I think, that he's saying. Now, God is our Savior, but for them there, he became their Savior in a way that he was not before. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. I'm not sure how much we, when I say we, I'm saying humans in general today, like to think of God as a man of war today. No doubt if we lived in certain parts of the world where being a Christian meant you were persecuted, you'd probably want him to be a man of war most of the time, (laughs) if not all of the time. Defend me, keep me safe. Here where we have relative peace, at least in the West or in other parts of the world, we're saying that you're Christian and and living up to your faith does not require you to, to battle against enemies, to feel as though you might die. Uh, we tend to think of God as He's just love, right? Which I don't disagree with, but love as defined often is love kind of like this, I don't know how you call it, but just this love that has no, this mercy which has no element of justice to it. We don't like that when we see that in humanity, right? This kind of mercy or, or in our uh, justice system, we don't like mercy without some kind of justice, But with God, it's okay. That that can just be mercy. There's no justice with God. No, 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 no. There is a just aspect to God. And many times God says, you've gone this far, you will go no further. And there are times where God comes in and he is a man of war and he conquers armies and he destroys those who seek to do harm to his people because God does not look kindly on those who seek to destroy his people or even seek not to respect them. Remember, Egypt's crime was not just that they pursued them, but was that they oppressed them back in Egypt, that they made them slaves. Okay. So, just as a note here, make no mistake, God will avenge his own. We are not told that we are to take revenge in our own hands. We are told that God will repay, right, in Scripture. God will bring everyone their due desert, what they deserve, not desert in terms of Uh, what we eat after the main meal. Some of the time, right? So then we have a shift here that's taking place in verse 9. He's talking a lot here in the first part about what God has done for them. I hope you notice that. He's talking about how the armies have been destroyed, how the waters come, how easy and almost effortless it has been for God. All he did was raise his right arm, a a blow from his nostrils, right? Right? And the waters come. It's not like God is a man of war and it's, you know, taking him so much time and so much energy. It's, it's as though God is able to do great things with hardly any effort at all because he is so powerful and so good. And so Moses is describing this song, what God has done for them. And in verse 9, he gives us a little window into what Pharaoh and his army must have been thinking. Remember how I said it must have been easy? Notice what it says there. The enemy is saying, I will pursue I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied upon them. I will draw my sword and I will destroy them. My hand shall destroy them, not knowing that in that very night they would actually perish. But then, and I think this is important because he's trying to 
in this song make a proclamation in case anyone else starts to think, and we'll see this towards the end of the chapter as well when he starts to talk about the other nations fearing. You have this notion that Moses is trying to express that when others see what God has done for them, they will be hesitant or reluctant to do the same measure or to engage in the same measure of what Egypt did to them because they'll be afraid that God will step in and act. And I hope you see that in this song. So lest another army come and think that they can march upon Israel and they will have the same attitude like this will be easy, we'll be satisfied, we'll divide the spoil and all this stuff. Moses in a song is trying to say them think twice. God is able to act. And don't forget this song, God is able to open the sea for us if need be. God is able to deliver in ways that you know nothing of. So that's why he gives us that snippet. But verse 11, I see a, a larger shift take place in, in terms of this song because Moses stops describing, at least I wouldn't say not completely, but he starts to focus on something different. And that's he stops focusing so much on what God has done and starts focusing more on who God is. This is important. I need you to follow me here. When we talk about the what and the who, it would be very accurate to say that what God does is an outflow of who He is, correct? And this is true for all of us. Even what we do is determined by who we are, which is why there's so much emphasis on faith and works, right? If you truly believe, you will go and do certain things and not do other things. Uh, by the abundance of what is in the heart, the mouth speaks. What we do, what we say, is an outflow of who we are, of what we really think, in other words. Is it the same with God? Now, let me display it this way. I, I want to talk to you a little bit about the attributes of God, at least in, 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 a, in a short and as succinct a way as I possibly can. Tried to do this in first service. I got a few nods so they understood it. I'm going to try to do it a little bit more in second service because someone gave me a question afterwards and I want to make sure that you follow. What are some of the attributes that we rightly give to God that make God who He is when we start describing who is God? Okay, love, one of them. What are some of the other things that make God divine? Sorry, okay, joy, peace, you're, you're explaining a lot of virtues. I'm not disagreeing with those. I think they're part of it. But there's more to, let me ask it this way. What is God? What does it mean to be divine? Okay, omnipresent, perfect, in the sense of, I would describe it as moral perfection, right? Omniscient, that he knows. Okay, so you're getting the, the, these attributes which I've talked, his omnipresence, his omniscience, his omnipotence, right, his power. And we could go maybe say his foreknowledge, is part of this. Now, question, can God decide, I want to, like, as though he can flick a switch and say, well, I don't want to be omnipresent today. Okay, no, this is part of what he is. Kind of like we have things which, if we were to summarize, what does it mean to be human? These are things which we cannot take away from us, things which are what we would say maybe in one way as essential or necessary, and then other things which we could say there's freedom and you can be somewhat different. Let me, let me try and describe it this way. Um, if you were to, God forbid, lose a hand, would you not be human? You, you would still be human, right? I would think, even though you were to lose a hand. If you were to lose your heart, 
would you still be human? Okay. Good qualification there. Yes, but a dead one is what I heard. Thank you, David. You wouldn't be alive anymore. You wouldn't be, you'd be the body without the humanity. So you see, some things to us are essential and necessary. Other things are part of us, but they're not that essential. Like our arms, our legs, but our heart, our brain, uh, we could go probably a lot of our internal organs actually are more essential to us than some of the, the, the outer extremities. So when we come to God and we come to just describing what is it to be a divine being, there are things which are essential and necessary, things which are very much a part of God that if he did not have those, he would not be God. For example, a divine being that does not have omnipotence, is that a divine being? No, this is essentially part of being a divine being. But let's go back to humanity now. So we have humans, we have hearts, we have minds, we know the things which are essential to us in order to be alive. But not every human is the same. There are some humans which hopefully by God's grace are good humans and some humans which are very evil and wicked. What determines that? They're both human. Part of that is the choices that they make, the environment in which they were raised. There came many factors which we may, I'm not here to, to dissect all of these, but I'm saying the different choices we make make us, we make our choices and our choices make us. You've heard this oftentimes. We become certain kinds of people in life, through life, through the experiences we face and through the choices we make. And that means that we end up being different people sometimes at the end of our lives than we were at the beginning. Hopefully, when I'm speaking here amongst Adventists and Christians, we end up being better as life goes on, right? And we become more and more like Christ. But for a lot of people who reject Christ, who reject the, the promptings of the Holy Spirit and who seek to rebel against God, end up becoming worse and worse and worse. So what I'm saying is you can be human and you can be wicked, right? And you can be human and you can trust in Lord and you're probably not perfect, but you're aiming that way and you're becoming more like Christ. And I would say as long as Christ's righteousness covers you, you are a good person. So now when I come back to God, is it possible that God could have all these attributes, be essentially God, but not be the person that he is? Some of you say, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to debate that. I'm going to say that it's possible. It's not the case, but it's possible. Why? Because if God cannot flick the switch between being omnipresent or not, do we praise God for the fact that he is omnipresent? We're thankful for it. But we don't sort of pat God on the back and say, you know, I'm glad God is omnipresent, but I don't praise and rejoice the fact that he's doing something he cannot help. I don't praise my computer every time I open it when there's a message there that says, I love you. Now, it's special because my wife put it there or I actually put it on her computer. Um, she finds it special because I put it there, but she doesn't thank the computer. The computer doesn't have a choice. Does God have a choice? If we say he doesn't, why do we praise him for the things that he has no choice over? He's just the way he's programmed to be. So notice the shift that Moses is making here in his song. They're very thankful for what God has done for them, but he wants to acknowledge that the what is an outflow of who he is. And the who he is is absolutely amazing and wonderful. And that's what makes God do all the wonderful what's for each and every one of us. 
Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious, not in pomp, glorious in buildings, glorious in in how big of an army he has, glorious in holiness, glorious in, in who you are. That sense of right and wrong is so deep to God. He is love. He is not necessarily so, but it is part of who he is, and he chooses to be that way. The Bible even tells us that I choose to love you freely. Love and choice must must go hand in hand. If there is no choice, love is not what it is. Just like my computer that might say, I love you, I love you, I love you. Without choice, it means very, very little. So when God says that he loves us, he does so because he actually does. He chooses to. And it's more than just the choice. He, he, he's emotionally invested in our well-being. He loves and he cares for us. And he does this even when we are rebelling sometimes against him. He still has the Holy Spirit come and knock gently and say, I still love you. I still care for you. Please turn back to me. Glorious in holiness. Who is like you? Fearful in praises. Now, fearful, I don't think that the fearful sense here is, is sort of being afraid. But even if it was, when I, when, I, when I first read this, I have to say fearful in praises. I thought, you know, when you announce someone in a, in a sporting match or something, whether it be, I don't follow sports that much, but I'm aware of some things. Um, I know, I remember as a child hearing the introduction to a boxing match, just the introduction. I didn't, didn't uh, see the boxing match, but I heard the introduction. Many of you know what it's like. You know, the, the I don't know, the announcer, is that what the person's called? The person in the middle, he uh, kind of says, in this corner we have, and then he starts titling all the fearful things this person have done. He's had this many knockouts in his career. He's, you're trying to make them feel as, as, as imposing and as terrible as you possibly can, right? And then it climaxes to whatever their name is, and then does the same thing for the other corner, and then you have the match. And it's like, God, when he's announced, isn't fearful in all the, the horrible things that he does. He's fearful in the praises that he gets. Imagine announcing, you know, here comes the creator of everything living, the one who heals all diseases, the one who's able to raise the dead back to life again. I mean, ooh, <laughs> You know, should make you afraid, right? Well, no, God doesn't want us to be afraid of him. But in one sense, yes, we should be afraid when we're in the presence of someone who has such goodness that we appear like filthy rags. And praise the Lord that he's willing to cover our filthy rags, right? Amen. But God here is trying to say he is fearful in praises, doing wonders, in other words, even Moses is, is I, I feel this, this doing wonders part, is Moses saying, even I wouldn't have thought of parting the Red Sea to give us deliverance. And yet this is the kind of stuff God does. What else will he do? You stretch out your right hand, the earth swallowed him. Okay, he highlights again God's mercy in verse 13 and the fact that he has redeemed his people, these things which God delights in, to show mercy, to redeem. You have guided them in your strength, to your holy habitation. Where is that? Well, keep that in the back of your mind because we're going to continue going. A bit more is given at the end of the chapter. 
Then we get to verse 14. The people will hear and be afraid. He starts talking about all these other nations. And this is exactly what happened. If you, if you read a little bit later in the story, you know that after their mistake, when they sent out the spies again, uh, when it comes to Joshua's time, after the 40 years, he just sends two spies in, right? And they go through the land and they come back. And what report do they give? Not only that it's a good land, just as you said it was, Joshua, but they said, the fear of us has come upon all the inhabitants. They're afraid. They know that God is with us and they're afraid of what he can do. Why? Because they remember what happened at the Red Sea. They remember how God has delivered us and in the conquest they had on the other side of the Jordan as well, how God delivered them. So this, this is, is what he is describing here, this fear that will fall on the other nations because of what God has done for them. And then then uh, verse 16 here starts to end, until or till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. Pass over to where? Remember, a little bit earlier, what was it? Verse 13, it says, to your holy habitation. And it says in verse 17, we get somewhat of an answer. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. And then verse 18 says again that, uh, there, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. Question, is, is the sanctuary, has the sanctuary been given to Israel yet? The sanctuary comes later, right? When they're at Mount Sinai, God gives them the law. Moses goes up and he tells him how to make it, the pattern. Remember, uh, Exodus 25, 8 tells us, Make them a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And verse 9 is telling us, make it according to the pattern that I show you. And the furnishings as well, according to the pattern. In other words, everything in the sanctuary is patterned after something where? In heaven. Hebrews 8, verses 1 and 2. We won't go there for the, for the sake of time. But you have there, we have such a high priest that is seated at the throne. But he, what? He works in the sanctuary which the Lord erected and not man. So Moses here is apparently, even before he's received all the laws, even before he's received how the sanctuary services ought to operate, he has a glimpse here into the fact that there is a sanctuary. There is a place where God dwells that God built and not man. And he's saying here that you will bring us, we, God's people will pass over. Pass over where? God will continue delivering his people until when? Until we are finally with God in his home. So, you could say in this passage that part of this fulfillment is applying to the actual nation of Israel when they went to Jerusalem, when they finally built the temple on the mount. And I would say, okay, some of it is there, but God's people still need a deliverance even after that, and we still need deliverance now. I think more than likely Moses is looking forward to that ultimate deliverance. This little deliverance of the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army is actually a display of the ultimate deliverance of God people throughout every age that have been delivered by oppressors, by an army that's coming after them, whether it be literal or whether it be the army that exists in principalities and powers of darkness, which tends to be, I would say, for us in the West, more where we fight our battles rather than literal soldiers that come at us with but not in every part of the world in some parts of the world there are still literal battles which are being waged so notice i will plant them and uh sorry i will bring them in and plant them in the mountain now if we were to go to isaiah chapter 14 
which talks about where Lucifer, you know, he gives a snippet of what Lucifer was thinking when he said, I will be like the Most High, right? I will ascend. And he says, I will sit on the mount on the furthest sides of the north. Evidently, God rules even in heaven from some kind of mount where the congregation sits or, 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 or stands around him and he speaks. So I... Yeah, I don't want to get into Sinai, but Sinai is almost a little picture of what heaven is like, if you will, in the sense that God is on the mountain and the people are around. And I think that heaven is somewhat like that, that the hosts come around God, but God is there speaking to them above them on some sort of little or big mount. I don't know how big it is, but Moses here is uh, particularly addressing uh, that aspect of it. So, now at least you can see why I think Moses is definitely alluding to what is going to happen at the end of time here. And then we have this, uh, the scripture reading here, which uh, came where Miriam takes the first part, the sort of refrain, and repeats it over and over again, and the other ladies as well in the camp. And then we read from verse 22. And it says, So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and, there, and they went how many days? Three days. In the wilderness and found no water. Now when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah, which means bitter. Now Moses knew that they couldn't drink the water there because it was unpalatable. But the children do what after that? They try the water, they see that it's bitter and you can't drink it. They've been thirsty for a while now and they do what? complain, grumble. They do what they do best, it seems, over and over again in the wilderness. But God, in His mercy, uses this as an opportunity to show His ability to redeem, His ability to forgive, His power to heal. And He changes the water from bitter to sweet. But what is interesting to me is when I first read this, I'm like three days later, so the first day, Moses comes up with the song and they sing it. They're singing that song, my guess, is probably all day because they're so excited. The second day, the tune is at least on their, on their lips, if not the actual song. And then the third day, we're coming up to this. And what are they singing about all this time? How many times in the song do you hear of sea and waters? Do you not get the sense that God has power over water? And all it takes is three days... And they forget. It's like you'd almost not believe it except it's written in Scripture and we are not in the habit of denying what's written in Scripture. But if you were telling a story and you said three days later they forgot, you're like, really, three days? Praise the Lord for His mercy and His patience with each and every one of us. Of all things they complain about water and God still says, I can still work with you. Please understand. Moses, take that tree, put it in the water. The waters are made sweet. And they, they, uh, God is able to display, I am the God who heals you. Just as I am able to heal these waters, so I can heal your heart. I can, I can cause you to turn back to me. We can have a relationship. You do not need to continue in the way that you were going. And then they came and they camped, and I, I want to end the story there. But I don't want to end or close without reading a few more passages from the, scripture, from the uh, spirit of prophecy here. So in Patriarchs and Prophets, I'm going to be reading from page 288, 289, and 290. 
of you here, but she, she just paints the most beautiful picture. One of the quotes here you have in your bulletins, I'm not going to read that one, except for the last sentence, which I find very, very beautiful, which says, the Spirit of God rested upon Moses as he led the people in a triumphant anthem of thanksgiving. The earliest and one of the most sublime